0: Well, friends, we are going to look at a a section of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We're going to give our attention to Mark chapter 3 in the first six verses, Uh, but I want to read to you beginning with verse 23 of chapter 2. And as I read, we're going to stand in honor of God's Word. So please stand as you're able uh, for the reading of the Scripture here. Mark chapter 2, beginning with verse 23, all the way through chapter 3, verse 6. One Sabbath, he, that is the Lord Jesus, was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Friends, as we've discussed already in the service here, uh, this is the first Sunday of Advent, the weeks leading up to our celebration of the incarnation of our Lord when He came to walk the earth in our midst and to save us from our sins, Christmas. And as we study the Gospel of Mark here, we come to the end of a section today. Uh, There are five controversies that have taken place in chapter 2 and here at the beginning of chapter 3 is the fifth. Uh, Conflicts that have followed the same similar pattern that there is an action or something the Lord Jesus does or says. There is a, a controversy surrounding it. He is criticized in some way, and then he responds in a way that silences his opponents. We're going we're to consider this passage today and in some ways themes throughout these conflicts. Uh, and then for the next two Sundays, uh, our brother John Carroll is going to finish his series on uh, the Lord's Prayer, and then we'll be Uh, into the Sunday before Christmas and the last Sunday of the year. So we'll come back to the Gospel of Mark in the next section uh, at the beginning of 2020. But this passage, as I said, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3, is the sort of the capstone, the final controversy in this section that we've been studying. And all of these controversies have, in a way, they've been about bringing clarity about who Jesus Christ is and this gospel that he is preaching. Clarity about his authority, about his compassion. It's funny how controversy sometimes brings clarity that way. These controversies and this clarifying revelation of who he is, they have involved conflict, and of course they have. As we've read in John chapter 1, Jesus is the light of the world and his own did not receive him. But the light yet shines in the darkness. And, and that light To put it in his terms from a previous passage here, he is like new wine that bursts the wineskins, causes conflict with the ways of the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious authorities of the day. We've seen that conflict develop over the last chapter. We've seen it develop from questions to suspicion to criticism to a trap and a plot to kill in this passage. This increasing conflict is also increasingly clarifying about who Jesus is and what his gospel really means. We're going to consider this text. We're going to walk through it briefly, these six verses, and then I want to make three points to you. I I want to mention to you three lessons we learned from this text. The first has to do with who Jesus Christ is. The second has to do with something that he loves, and then the The third is something that grieves him. So look with me at chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This follows the controversy about the grain on the Sabbath that we read and talked about in detail last week. And that controversy in chapter 2, it ends with this incredible statement in verse 28. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. We touched on that last week. We'll look at it in some more detail this morning. But here, in the beginning of chapter 3, he demonstrates that he is indeed the Lord of the Sabbath. That he has the authority, the power, the right to do exactly as he pleases on the Sabbath day and, in fact, on any day. He is the Lord. Look at verse 1. Again he entered the synagogue, and the man was there with a withered hand. The Lord Jesus goes into the synagogue, the gathering place, of Jews in the first century, and it's the Sabbath day. We learn that in verse 2. And there was a man there in the synagogue on the Sabbath day who had a withered hand, a man who was likely crippled in some fashion, either by disease or by injury or by a defect in birth. Something made him unable to use his hand, and his hand, the Scriptures tell us, was withered. It It was unusable to him. He was disabled in this way. And verse 2 tells us they watched Jesus. That is, the the scribes and the Pharisees, his opponents, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. The question arises, was this man with the withered hand planted there? We don't know. But we do know their purpose in this. Verse 2 tells us, so that they might accuse him. They wanted to accuse the Lord Jesus of breaking the law of God. Jesus was becoming an increasing threat to them, to their whole way of operation and to their control, and they were looking for ways to undermine him, and they wanted to accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. They wanted him to break the law, according to their interpretation, and they wanted him to violate the Sabbath day. As we talked about last week, the law forbids working on the Sabbath day. And by the interpretation of the rabbis in this time, that included medical work, that included the work that a doctor would do. Now, it was separated. They separated uh, medical care into essential and non-essential, right? And they had categorized, very specifically, the straightening of a deformed body or the setting of a broken limb as forbidden, because that was non-essential, you see. Now, anybody here who's ever broken a bone and need to have it set, you might disagree with them that it's non-essential to have that taken care of, but that was the way they understood it. That can wait until the next day. So, this man with the withered hand, for him to be healed on the Sabbath day, according to their interpretation, according to rabbinical tradition and their commands as they were teaching them, was a Sabbath violation. Now, the Pharisees evidently knew that Jesus was likely to notice this man with the withered hand and have compassion on him. We'll we'll come back to that point in a minute. But, boy, it tells us a lot about what sort of man Jesus was and is. That they expected him to heal this man as soon as he saw him. And verse 3, they were not disappointed. Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. Jesus does notice the man, and he calls him. Now, likely to his horror, Jesus calls him out in the midst of this crowd. Then, I'm sure, as is today, the inclination of somebody with a a disability like this was not to have it uh, shown off publicly in front of everybody, but rather to keep that disability hidden. And here, Jesus calls him out in front of everybody, maybe, maybe a crowd this size, and says, you there, come over here. You'd probably be terrified if I did that right now. I'm a little bit terrified with all of you looking at me right now. But Jesus calls this man out, calls him to him. And then verse 4 with all eyes on him, he turns to the Pharisees who were watching him, and he asks this question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Now, we know what Jesus means by do good. We know the good he's about to do for this man. We just read it. He's going to heal him. He's going to straighten that hand and restore it to usefulness. He's going to make this man whole again. In that regard. But what does Jesus mean by harm? Is it lawful to do good or to do harm? Is Jesus implying that to ignore the needs of this man would be the equivalent of being guilty of harming him? That there's a a moral obligation when we're in the presence of somebody in need? Well, that's possible. That's what he's referring to. There is biblical teaching that, that supports that idea. There are principles outlined, especially in the Old Testament and the Proverbs, that to, to, to refuse to be generous to the poor is to rob from him. To refuse to help someone who is in need when you are able is to do them harm. But I think there is something beyond that that Jesus is referring to. And it is the fact that the Pharisees are the ones who are doing harm on the Sabbath. I mean, it's ironic if you think about it, what's happening here, and his question, is it lawful to do good or to do harm? He is planning to do good here on the Sabbath. They want to prevent him from doing that work of helping this man. But they're also working, aren't they? The Pharisees are also hard at work. They're hard at work hatching a plot against the Lord Jesus. They're the ones who are intending to do harm on the Sabbath day. And likely, I think this is at least part of what Jesus has in mind because the next question is to save life or to kill. Well, who's talking about killing anyone, Jesus? Well, by the end of the day, they will be talking about killing someone. And he knows this. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm? Is it lawful to save a life or to kill? By the end of the day, they themselves will be plotting murder, calling a council meeting to discuss it. Is that not work on the Sabbath day? And ooh, what an evil work it is. Well, in response to this question, they are silent. They know the correct answer. Of course, it's lawful to do good, to save a life. The Scriptures are actually explicit about that. And yet they cannot bring themselves to give that answer because they know to do so would prove Jesus right and to prove them wrong. They know the truth, and yet they are silent. In verse 5, he looks around at them with anger grieved at their hardness of heart. These are strong words. These are graphic words. We'll talk about them more in a moment also. He tells this man to stretch out his hand, which again, imagine this man. Imagine the the terror there. Everybody is looking at him, and he's told to stretch out this disabled hand. And he does it, though. He complies. He does as the Lord tells him to do, just as he got up when he was called. And what is the result? He is healed. His hand is restored as he stretches it out. Verse 6, the Pharisees go out immediately, Mark tells us, and call for a meeting, a council together, to start actively plotting to kill the Lord Jesus, to destroy him. That's the text. Now, there are three lessons here that I want to point out to you. They're they're not the only lessons in the text, and they're not novel. They're things that we've talked about and touched on in various ways as we've gone through these previous conflicts. But here, with this kind of culminating conflict, they are clarified, and they are worth our consideration. The point of the text, after all, I do believe, is, is who Jesus Christ is. Who is this man who says, I am The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Do we know who He is? Do we remember who He is? The first lesson, the first point I want to make is that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Now again, that's not novel. But I want to remind you that Jesus Christ being our Lord, that is not merely a title that we give Him, He is, in fact, the ruler and master of everything, including us and our lives in every way. We see his authority expressed here. He does exactly as he pleases on the Sabbath day. He even commands paralysis and it obeys him. But as astounding as that healing is, it is just a small demonstration of the truth that he claimed so boldly in the last verse of the previous chapter when he said, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. It's one of those texts that we just cruise right past it. But friends, it is is astounding what he's claiming when he says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. You remember what the Sabbath day is. We talked about it in some detail last week. But it is that seventh day of creation. It is that day that... God himself, the creator of the universe, set aside from the very beginning from creation and called it his own day. He made it holy. He made it sacred. He made it his day, special among all days, from the very beginning. And here Jesus Christ says, that's my day. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Here is a bold claim to his divinity, if we're paying attention, to his equality with the Father. And it is truly astounding to them when he says it. I mean, consider it. He's saying, this is mine. What you consider, the Pharisees, what you consider most sacred, the Sabbath day, I own it. I am the Lord of it. I mean, imagine, friends, it's just just a couple, has it even been a couple months since I was called as the senior pastor of this church? It's not been that long. Imagine if I stood up in the pulpit today and I said, I know I haven't been the senior pastor very long here, but I know that some of you aren't happy with some of the decisions that I've been making in this church. But listen, I want to tell you something. I own this church. This church is mine. This pulpit is mine. You know. What if I said that? I mean, some of you would say, oh boy, here we go. This is what we were afraid of. He's lost it, right? <laughs> it would. It would be offensive. And some of you, some of you who've served in this church for a long time and have invested a lot of years, it probably made your skin crawl just to hear me say that, even though I didn't mean it. This church is not mine. I'd be crazy to say that. But friends, don't forget, there is somebody, there is a man, who could stand in this pulpit and say, this church is mine. I own it. And he would not be crazy. It would be the absolute truth. He could stand up here and say, this pulpit is mine. In fact, the word preached from it is my word. And every soul sitting in a pew here is mine. That's the amazing truth that's being revealed here when Jesus says the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. If He's Lord of the Sabbath, He's Lord of everything. That's God's day from the very beginning, long before Moses. And if Jesus Christ is the Lord of that day, friends, what is He not the Lord of? Christ is God Himself. This man walking in those grain fields with His disciples, the man sitting in the synagogue here, He is the Creator of the universe. And it is astounding to think of it. I mean, you think about the irony. These scribes and Pharisees, not knowing what they were doing, they were trying to use the Sabbath against him. His own law to accuse him of breaking his Sabbath. Oh, but the Sabbath is his and everything is his. And he uses his day exactly as he pleases. Friends, all that we know, all that we are, it is indeed his. There is a God, there is a master, there is a Lord. We are not our own. We are His. Do you know that? Everything in our flesh, in our nature, everything in the world would tell us otherwise. You are the beginning and the end. You are the pinnacle. You are the judge. But friends, that is not the truth. We were made, and our Maker lives, and He is the Lord. Have you acknowledged that? Do you live that way? As if everything is His. Our jobs and how long they last. Our lives and how long they last. Our children, the courses they take. Every circumstance. It's His. All of it is His. This is why, friends, we set aside some of our money as we did in the offering earlier. It's not because some of our money is His. It's all His. And we set, we set some of it aside, both as a, a representation of that reality and as an act of worship. And friends, this is why we call Sunday the Lord's Day. Right? You, you ever think about that, why we call it the Lord's Day? I mean, all the days are His days, right? There is no day that is not the Lord's day. Oh, but friends, we as a church have set aside this one day particularly. In sort of the same way we set aside some of our resources in that offering, to say, now this is his day. It's all his, but I'll lay aside this day for him. And it's not my day, it's his day. Oh, well, it would be good for us, friends, if we would think of our days that way. If we would think of if we think of this day that way. This is not my day to use as I please according to whatever my whim is in the moment. This is not, as the world thinks of it, second Saturday. This is the Lord's day. It's not mine. There is one who is the Lord of my whole life, not one day a week, not a few dollars, everything, everything is his. It's disconcerting to think about someone with authority like that over us. It can be. To think of ourselves as not our own, as not the buck stopping with me, but it stops with him. That can be unsettling. And the question, the obvious question, is what is he like? If he's got that kind of authority, who is he? What is this person like? Some of you may be in a business situation before where you've got a new boss that's gonna come in. Your old boss goes somewhere and there's a new boss coming in. Everybody wants to know what's he gonna be like? What's she gonna be like? What kind of person is this that's going to have so much control over my schedule and my responsibilities and my life and my paycheck? We ought to ask that question about our Lord. What's he like, the one who owns us and sets the path of our days? And this is the second lesson I want to point out to you. Our Lord loves mercy. You know a lot about a person by what they love. And find out a lot, of, a lot about somebody by what they're passionate about, what they care about, if they love family or exercise or whatever. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ loves mercy, and that is demonstrated here in this text. There is good to be done in the synagogue this day, and it's his desire to do so, and he's going to do it, whether it's a trap or not. Again, the Pharisees knew that he would do this. I think that's fascinating, that this is, that this is a trap in that way that they knew that he's not going to look the other way when he sees this guy with the withered hand there. I had a friend in college. I went to college at the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, and I had a friend there who you you had to be careful if you're going to go out to dinner with him because if he encounters somebody on the street that he can talk to, he's going to share the gospel with them, and it was the whole gospel he was going to share, and we may or may not get dinner. We're not going to walk past somebody that this guy can talk to that he's not going to engage with them that way. That was the reputation that he had. We knew that about him. And I think it's fascinating that these Pharisees knew about Jesus, that he's going to notice this guy, and he's going to do something. So they're watching him. That's the kind of man that he was, the kind of man that he is. And he does not look the other way. He he heals this man. Imagine being there and seeing this man's hand. Go from this withered state, stretched out into a whole, restored hand again. Imagine that. This is the man who has the authority to raise the dead, who will raise the dead. What does it tell us about our Lord that his enemies could use a crippled man as bait for their trap? Well, it tells us not just that he can heal, but that he will heal and it is his desire to heal. That he wants to. That's the point that I want to make here. That he loves to. That he loves healing the sick. That he loves welcoming the outcast. That he loves freeing those oppressed by demons. He loves opening the eyes of the blind. He loves saving sinners. That's what kind of person he is. We talked about it a few weeks ago when we thought, talked about him having dinner with, those, with the sinners and the tax collectors. He does so willingly, friends. It's expressed here in his care for this crippled man, but it is all over the Gospels. He is moved with pity, doing good, tirelessly seeking the blessing of those who are around him. And don't forget, friends, that is what the cross is all about. That is what Advent is all about. The incarnation is all about. He came to do good for us. There was nothing lacking in him, nothing missing in him and his glory that he needed to come and get from us. Now, he's not like Tinkerbell. I've said this many times. You got to all believe hard enough to pump him up. You know, It's not like he doesn't need us for that. He came to give. He came to serve. He came to die. That's who he is, and he came willingly. Christ is the Lord who does good. That is his desire. That's his character. That's who he is. And friends, the Scriptures are very clear. Colossians chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, who the Lord Jesus is reveals who the Father is. God is not just our maker. He is our Father. In fact, before he made anything, He was a father to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who gives to his children and blesses them. So here's the second part of the question I asked a minute ago. Have you acknowledged that he is the one who has authority over all? And have you also recognized that he is good and he loves mercy? And it is the desire of his great divine heart to do good for people. He is not some scowling old man in heaven who's looking for ways to mess up our fun. That's a ridiculous image of the God who made the universe and His mercy and sent Christ to die on the cross. It's a blasphemous image to imagine Him that way. Oh, He loves mercy and to do good. And that is the message of the cross, friends. It is written in His blood. His desire to do good for sinners. Have you listened to him yet? I don't know how he could say it louder. Remember, friends, also, brothers and sisters, his will is for his people to be like him. To do good and to love mercy. Always has been. All the way from Leviticus. Don't hate your brother in your heart, but forgive. Have mercy, do good to your enemy. John chapter 13, this is how they'll know you're my disciples, by your love. Are we like him as a church? Do we follow him in this way? We who claim his name, do we work for the good of others? Do we love mercy? Our Lord, our master, our God, he was, he is a man of boundless compassion. He loves mercy. And real love like that is costly. It often involves grief. And that's the third point that I want to make. Who He is, He is the Lord of everything. What is He like? What does He love? He loves mercy. It's His desire to do good for sinners. But also, friends, there are things that grieve Him. Real love is always that way. Many of you all have known the cost of grief that comes along with real love. This divine heart of love grieves as well. And in this text, we see he's grieved by hard-heartedness. Verse 5. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. As I said, that is graphic language. That That is passionate language. It is this mix of anger and sorrow that is being communicated. It's not just frustration. It's not just irritation. He's not, come on, guys. But he is angry, really angry, and he is also brokenhearted at the same time. He is distraught over what he sees. I'm trying to think of a a way to illustrate what's being described here in the text. Some of you who have adult children or teenage children, you, you know what it's like to watch a child whom you love make a terrible decision that causes great hurt for them after you have pleaded with them to do otherwise. You may have a sense of what this grief and anger is like. Why would he do that? My heart is broken by it. Some of you who have gone through the tragedy of having a loved one commit suicide, you felt some of what's being described here. I am so sad and I am so angry. What brings about this feeling in our Lord? What brings about this anger and grief in Him? The text tells us it is their hardness of heart. They look at this man, the Pharisees do, they look at this crippled man, they look at him as a tool, as bait. They have no compassion on him. They have no tenderness towards him. They have no desire to help him or to do good for him. They are using him, and their concern is only for themselves and their agenda. They have a hard heart towards that man. But that is not the only hardness of heart here, and I do not think that is the hardness of heart that is specifically being referred to. Because their hardness of heart is not just to this man and his need, but their hardness of heart is to Christ as well. Their hardness of heart is to the Lord God. And his will. There is a stubbornness in them. There is a resistance in them to Christ and to his gospel. Despite the fact that he keeps demonstrating his authority, despite the fact that he keeps demonstrating his compassion, despite the fact that he silences them and their objections over and over again, yet they remain stubborn and stiff necked before him. They remain unteachable. Again and again, he proves who he is. And they will not listen. In pride, they are silent. A tender heart, friends, is one that listens. A heart that responds. A heart that can be moved, can be changed. A hard heart is unmovable. Deaf, cold. A heart of stone. And this, I do believe, is what ultimately grieves the Lord Jesus and the Pharisees. They know the answer to his question. They know the truth, but they will not acknowledge it. They won't answer him. They're silent. Now, I want to issue a, a warning here. We should learn a lesson. There are those who disbelieve the gospel, those who reject the claims of the Scriptures. but there are also those who know that the gospel is true and yet in stubbornness refuse to respond. There are those who know that the world did not happen by accident, that it was made. Those who know that there is something wrong with the human race, that we are fallen, that sin is real, that we need to be redeemed. those who know that the kind of redemption given in Jesus Christ and Christ alone will be our only hope. And yet, stay silent and go about their business and do not respond. It is easy not to respond. In human terms, there is not a risk. And friends, if that is you, I would encourage you, I would plead with you, respond. If you've been sitting in church your whole life, listening to the gospel, saying, no, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, don't, I don't disagree with any of that. But day after day, you walk out of here and you do not respond to what you even might acknowledge is true. Friends, respond. Do not continue with a stiff neck like that. Do not continue with a stubborn, hard heart in the face of what you know is true. Be like this man with the withered hand. As risky as it might feel, stretch the hand out. Get up. Respond to his call. Respond to this Lord who's calling you. As terrifying as it might be, that's what faith looks like, to respond. Now, uh, the last thing I want to say, I do want to say this. Those of you who have responded to the gospel, there are many people in here who have stretched out the hand in that way have revealed their own sin and shame and confession to the Lord, and they have discovered that they are healed by the grace of God. But we must also watch for hard-heartedness. The same language that Jesus uses to describe these Pharisees, he uses to describe his disciples on several occasions. For the sake of time, we won't look, but in chapter 6, in verse 52, and chapter 8, in verse 17, he's grieved by the hardness of heart in his disciples. And it is really the same thing going on there. They know they know who he is. They have seen who he is. And yet they refuse to believe. After the breaking of the loaves, they're discussing, what are we going to do? We, lost, we left our bread behind. They know. And yet they are stubborn. Friends, it is easy for us to develop a stiff neck, even as disciples of the Lord Jesus, to know who he is, to know what he's like, to know what he desires, and yet in our stubbornness and our fear to do nothing, to sit and wring our hands in anxiety rather than trust in him. I mean, isn't that what happened with the the Exodus generation, right? They knew what he could do. They knew who he was. Ah, but they would not trust in him. And what did he call them? A stiff-necked, stubborn people. Oh, friends, we know who he is. We know what he's like. We know he is the Lord. We know that he loves mercy. We know that he's good. We know what his will is for us. We know about his commands, that we show mercy, that, that we devote ourselves to prayer and to his word, that we bear witness in evangelism that we forgive one another even as we've been forgiven. It's very easy to know what he wants and yet do nothing. Remain silent in our stubbornness. It's very easy to know that he is faithful and yet to be stubborn and not trust him. That may seem small to you, but it is not small to him. It does grieve his heart, and I think you see why. You see why the God of heaven who brought them through the Red Sea after the Exodus. When they turn around and they say, we don't have any water, what are we going to do? He says, when when will you learn? When will you listen? When will you turn a soft heart to me and know me as I am? It's the same God here in this passage. Speaks to the Pharisees. What's lawful? To do good or do harm? And they won't say a word and it grieves his heart. Friends, if you see ways in your life that you've been stiff-necked, that you've been stubborn, that you've been hard-hearted toward the Lord who you know is God, confess your sin to Him. Ask Him for mercy. He who is Lord of the Sabbath, He who is Lord of everything, He is a God who loves mercy. He is a God who forgives freely. In fact, delights in forgiving freely. Friends, be like that man with the withered hand here. Take that risk and stretch it out. Go to him. Stretch out your shame before him and confess it. He loves to heal. He loves mercy. He loves to forgive. Now, the very last thing I'll say here today, because we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper, is there is a cost of that forgiveness. The Lord Jesus, His authority to heal. He is willing to do so, but there's a cost. There's a cost in this text. Jesus Christ heals this man. This man with the withered hand, he stretches it out, and what is the result? The Pharisees are plotting to kill him. And that plot is going to be successful, isn't it? Jesus Christ will pay with his life for healing this man. Now, you know what that's about. That's about me and you. Oh, he'll heal us too. He has the ability to forgive us. He is willing to forgive us. And it's going to cost him. It has cost him. That's what the cross is all about. That he who was without sin would pour out his blood and give his body to be broken so that we sinners might be forgiven, might be redeemed. He has already paid that price that we might be healed. That's what this table's about. So friends, let's let's pray together now and we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your great kindness to us and your mercy. We pray, O Lord, that you would teach us to love Christ and trust him. Help us now as we celebrate this table to do so with faith. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.